1: Good afternoon. Uh, Welcome to today's talk. Uh, We have a special guest all the way from Vermont, Professor William Pyle, who is the Frederick C. Dirks Professor of International Economics there. Uh, Professor Pyle does research on economic institutions in post socialist countries, most particularly Russia, although, depending on your point of view, it may actually be post post socialist now. I don't think this is going to come up in today's talk, but it's something to consider. Uh, Now he's working on projects relating to land rights, business associations, and deposit markets. Uh, He's also um, starting to do some field work in China and learning Chinese. He has won several prestigious research grants. He's also been a visiting researcher at the Bank of Finland's Institute for Economics in Transition and at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow. In 2014, he was awarded the Russian National Prize in Applied Economics for research on Russian business lobbies. He also holds a BA from History at Harvard, an MA in Russia and East European Studies from Indiana, and a PhD in Economics from Duke. And uh, today's talk is called Privatization Plots. And I also want to acknowledge some special guests in the audience uh, who will make it all the more interesting, I'm sure, for Professor Pyle. The other Professor Pyle and Ann, and uh, Professor West, significant other. Uh, <laughs> Who I hear are, are watching will talk for the for the first time in person, so uh, that only adds to the excitement. So please join me in welcoming <laughs> Professor William Pyle. Thank you.
2: Thanks, Scott. Yes, having my own cheering section adds to the excitement and the uh, and the pressure, I think. Uh, so uh, thank you, Scott, for the uh, the kind introduction. Uh, of course, I'm I'm coming home. I grew up in Seattle went to uh, Bellevue High School my my father's office is just downstairs uh, and I can remember visiting him here in Thompson Hall on many occasions uh, as I was growing up here and I actually uh, began my study of Russia here in Seattle at, uh, at Bellevue High School and then I took uh, two years of summer language right here in Thompson Hall uh, Scott was mentioning he took summer language at Middlebury I took some summer language here at the uh, here at the University of Washington. Uh, So it's wonderful to be back back home, very uh, Seattle-like weather. Uh, (laughs) Let me get right into the the talk, which is uh, about some of the research that I've done uh, in the past five or six years, produced several papers at various stages of completion, some published, some in very early stages, that relates to what I feel is a neglected element of the privatization story, Russia's privatization story over the past generation, the privatization of its state-owned enterprises. Now, the basic plot of that privatization story, I don't think it's terribly controversial. Russia privatized thousands and thousands of medium and uh, large-scale state-owned enterprises Uh, relatively quickly in what was called a Big Bang Approach to Reform in the early and mid-1990s. And uh, that happened in the Yeltsin years and uh, in the Putin years, if anything, the rate of the privatization of state-owned enterprises slowed greatly and there was even a bit of reversal. And we'll look at some numbers in just a second to, uh, to illustrate that point. Um, During the first decade, there was very little evidence that privatization of these state-owned enterprises had a positive effect on their efficiency or their productivity uh, measures. And it's only more recently that at least some evidence is coming in that uh, privatization in some sense worked. It it, uh, produced enterprises that behaved in in ways that were actually better than the old state-owned establishments. Uh, that, uh, that existed in the Soviet era. And a third element of the privatization uh, story in Russia is that it was very unpopular. Uh, and we'll look at some, some polling data from uh, the 2000s, uh, the um, just one piece of evidence, but privatization was carried out in the mid-1990s very quickly at a time at which the Russian economy was collapsing. And so privatization, in the Russian mind, is associated very strongly, very tightly with that period of economic collapse and a lot of uh, Russians equate uh, poor macroeconomic performance with uh, the privatization of, of state-owned enterprises. What I'm going to be focusing on in, in my remarks mainly today though is what I feel is a neglected element of this, uh, this story of, of Russia's privatization uh, over the past uh, generation and that's the story of the land underneath. The, uh, the state-owned enterprises that were privatized. So just to, uh, to reiterate some of these uh, primary points in the privatization story, the first thing that I said was that privatization was carried out very quickly in the Russian case, a big bang approach to reform. Now this is a chart that uh, shows how much of output in a particular year was produced by the private sector in various Central East European and former Soviet uh, countries. And you can see Russia here is highlighted one of the bottom rows. At the beginning of the reform period uh, in the early 1990s, only 5% of total output accounted for by the private sector. But by later in the mid-1990s, after the Yeltsin reforms, Yeltsin and his young team of Western-inspired reformers introduced a Big Bang reform, uh, used various mechanisms to get the, uh, the factories, physical equipment, uh, into the hands of private parties. Some uh, some cases, the workers and managers of enterprises, in some cases, well-connected individuals uh, and in some cases, uh, ownership was taken over by Russian citizens who were uh, on the receiving end of pieces of paper or vouchers that they could then turn in for ownership uh, stakes in these various state-owned enterprises. But the important point to take away from this slide is it's happening very fast. Russia was one of the fastest uh, countries in terms of introducing privatization of the state-owned enterprises. This slide is meant to uh, to capture the uh, the poor results in terms of productivity uh, of these uh, privatized enterprises. This comes from a uh, a meta a meta analytical piece that appeared in the Journal of Economic Literature by a group of co-authors, in which they looked at all the different studies that primarily economists had done of enterprises, trying to see if there was a quote, privatization effect. Were the firms, these state-owned enterprises, that were either given away to new private owners or sold off into the private sector, uh, were they uh, performing more productively? Were they using their labor and capital inputs more effectively? And what we generally see is, in the case of the analyses that were done in Central and Eastern Europe, Most of the uh, research, each one of these dots, represents what the author feels is a uh, well-organized, methodologically sound study. In Central and Eastern Europe, almost all the uh, research from the data in the 1990s and early 2000s suggests very strong positive productivity effects. In the case of Russia and the CIS, particularly for privatization to domestic owners, to Russians, to Russian managers, workers, and just Russian investors. The early, uh, the early results were very mixed. Uh, the, uh, the good <coughs> methodologically sound studies from the late 1990s, early 2000s, suggested there may have even been a negative privatization effect. That is, these firms, once they became privately run, uh, they actually became less productive. Uh, That wasn't so much the case of firms that had foreign ownership in Russia, but clearly this geographic difference between Central and Eastern Europe, where privatization seems to have worked in terms of enhancing productivity, and the CIS region in Russia in particular, where if ownership was taken over by domestic parties, privatization seems not to uh, have worked. So privatization fast, privatization results are very mixed, and privatization very unpopular. This is data taken from the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development's Life and Transition Survey, and uh, people across the, uh, the post-socialist world were asked a series of survey questions about how they felt about how the economy was being run, including the question, in your opinion, what should be done with most privatized companies? So these were the old state-owned enterprises, They were sold off to the private sector or given away. And then the responses, the possible closed-end responses here, they should be, and then the dark responses that we see over in the bar graph here, renationalized and kept in state hands, renationalized, and then reprivatized using a more transparent process. So these people think that maybe the initial process was, was somehow unfair, not, uh, not well run. And then the other two responses were t- are a little bit more positive with respect to attitudes towards private property. And you can see that Russia, even during a period in which the economy is growing, the first decade of the 2000s, over half the population is in that dark zone where they'd like to see the privatized assets renationalized and perhaps some of them renationalized and then. Uh, sold off to the private sector in a more transparent way. And there's an awful lot of other evidence that uh, points to Russians feeling that the privatization process in the 1990s was handled poorly, produced very bad economic outcomes. Uh, the uh, the Levada Center, an independent polling group in, in Russia tracks these sorts of questions over time. And Russians' um, attitudes towards the markets have become progressively more and more negative. Uh, particularly after the global financial crisis and the increasing nationalism and anti-Westernism that we see in, in the present environment. So that's the basic privatization story, the basic plot, I would say, and it's a fairly uncontroversial one when it comes to uh, to Russia. The neglected element of the story, what I'd like to focus on has to do with the land underneath these privatized enterprises. What is often forgotten or neglected entirely is that when these enterprises, these thousands of state owned enterprises across the, the expanse of Russia, were privatized? The land underneath the enterprises was not privatized at the same time. The land continued to reside with local or regional governments. And so you had this bifurcation of the ownership of the assets. You had private enterprises on the surface, in the sense of the equipments and the building, uh, but The land itself continued to reside with uh, with state bodies. Now privatization in Central and Eastern Europe and in many places around the world, privatization is done in a way that unifies the ownership of the land assets and the -the on-the-surface assets. And so the way Russia went about privatization was somewhat unusual. And they did that for reasons primarily of speed. The reformers around Yeltsin, the Gaidars, and Chubais, have said it's just going to take too much time to draw all the boundaries, to do a very comprehensive survey to say this is where one, this is the GPS coordinate uh, where one enterprise's boundaries begins and where the other enterprise boundary ends. And so let's just go fast. Will worry about land later, and so privatization occurred quickly in 92, 93, 94, but land wasn't a part of it. Now that's changed in the past generation, and some of the enterprises that were privatized have had the opportunity to to reacquire. Uh, or, to acquire for the first time the ownership of the land assets that lie underneath them, and i'll I'll tell you about the circumstances that gave rise to that. But using the most recent data, the european the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development has finally begun in their. Uh, periodic business economic and business economic and environment uh, performance survey, where they go around and ask questions of managers at enterprises across the post-socialist bloc. They began asking questions about, do you own the land on which your establishment sits? And so, on the horizontal axis of this table. From the most recent wave of this survey, the BEEP survey, Business and Economic Environment and Performance Survey, we can see here Russia is somewhat of an outlier. Less than 30% of the BEEP's enterprises, and there are over 4,000 in this most recent wave, said they actually own the land on which they sit. Um, And then on the vertical axis here, we have the share of output in the country that's produced by the private sector. And so we see most countries in the post-socialist region, a lot of these are central and east European countries, but also some from Central Asia as well and the Caucasus. Most countries, there is a strong correlation between the share of output produced by the private sector, our vertical axis measure, and the share of firms that say they actually own the land. Not surprising in that because a lot of those countries, the land was privatized at the same time that the capital on top of the land was privatized. But Russia's an outlier. I'll come back to some of these other countries uh, toward the end of the talk. Now, does that matter that land was not privatized at the same time as the the other assets? Well, I'll make the case that land is an important asset for three different reasons. First of all, land is a very valuable asset. A lot of these enterprises when they were privatized, the actual physical capital, the machines, the technology, were incredibly uncompetitive, uh, particularly in a country that's beginning to open itself up to global markets. And so for many of them, particularly those located in highly populated cities, their most valuable asset was the land that they were sitting on. an enterprise that sits smack dab in the middle of a big city like St. Petersburg or Moscow or Novosibirsk, these these, uh, these enterprises are sitting on very uh, valuable land. And if you go about studying privatization and you neglect their most valuable asset, then you're missing a really big part of the privatization story. Ironically, none of those studies that were highlighted in... This analysis right here in which they had had about a hundred different articles that they looked at, privatization studies, none of them mention enterprise land. It's all about physical capital. Total total ignorance or total kind of skipping over uh, land as an important asset to, uh, to keep an eye on to assess whether or not privatization works. So land's a valuable asset, it's going to be even more valuable the more it's located in an urban core, and socialist cities are disproportionately industrial in their uh, physical makeup. And so a lot of those state-owned enterprises happen to be sitting right in the center of um, post-socialist cities on very valuable land. A second reason land is important is when firms own the land on which they sit, it makes it easy for them to use that asset to pledge as collateral to secure external lending. And a third reason is that if state officials, potentially corruptible state officials own the land on which an otherwise private enterprise sits, it gives those potentially corruptible state officials a little bit of a lever over with, with which to exercise control uh, over uh, enterprises, the threat that a lease might be uh, ha- have its terms changed or torn up entirely uh, gives uh, those potentially corruptible officials that sort of uh, leverage over, over uh, firms, even if they're otherwise private. So let's go back to the first point about be- land being a potentially valuable asset. So this looks a little bit like a, uh, I don't know, a modernist painting, we could even say maybe it looks like a Kandinsky painting. But it's, it's actually a map. Does anybody recognize what it, it would be a map of? I'm sorry? Petersburg. It's St. Petersburg, right. So this is Russia's second largest city, and we can see the Neva River right there. Now, the red in this map, and this comes from about, uh, well, 10, 15 years ago, the red is industrial land and then the yellow is non-industrial land. And if you compare St. Petersburg with other cities around the world, St. Petersburg has a disproportionate amount of red. Russian cities, Soviet cities, in part because of the development priorities of the Bolshevik government, they wanted to develop a uh, and represent an urban proletariat. So they built up a lot of their industries in the late 20s, early 30s, out through on the 50s, right in the center of cities, put big factories right in the center of cities, and then they didn't have land markets, land markets that could continually reassess whether or not land was being used in a particular way, in a a wise way, whether or not land might be used in a slightly different way. For instance, the main drag in St. Petersburg, Nevsky Prospect kind of cuts through the city right about here. You can walk a couple blocks off, at least 10 years ago, it's been a while since I was in St. Petersburg, you walk a couple blocks off of Nevsky Prospect to St. Petersburg and be surrounded by coal warehouses. In most modern cities around the world, it's not the case that you can walk a couple blocks off the main drag and be surrounded by coal warehouses or major industries. That sort of stuff is done outside of city centers where land values are lower. Generally, you have service sector and residential real estate, high-rise apartment buildings, that sort of thing in a city center. But in post-socialist cities, one of the legacies of the socialist era is a footprint that's heavily industrialized. Uh, And so you have very valuable land that initially, at least, with the first wave of privatization, is still state-owned, okay? Another... um, data point on on this, uh, uh, the nature of the post-socialist city here is, here we see over 40% of the built environment in St. Petersburg is industrial, Moscow it's about a third, five cities from Central and Eastern Europe that also had the same socialist development model and an absence of land markets that can continually reassess uh, whether or not uh, land was being used in a wise way, Uh, they have a little bit less uh, of an industrial footprint, and then we see kind of the global norm here. Uh, Cities like Seoul, Paris, London, and Atlanta, global norm is about 5% of urban land given over to industry. Who owns state-owned land? So in the Russian case, it can be the municipal government, it could be the regional government, and in some cases, it'll even be the federal government. Most of the enterprises that I surveyed, it's the municipal or the regional government, and they're actually paying a, uh, a rent uh, to uh, to whichever level of government is the formal the formal owner. Who's paying the rent to whom? The enterprise that's sitting on the oh, land will pay money? a rent to, 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 the, to formal the formal own. owner, whether it's the municipal government or the regional government. A corollary of having a lot of industry in the center of town is that you have a lot of people living outside of town. So. Uh, in a comparison of Paris and uh, Moscow, Europe's two largest cities, I think, we've got the population density gradient. Where do people live relative to the center of the city? And you see Paris, highest density is right in the center of town, and then it declines as you get 15 to 20 kilometers out. In Moscow, those of you who spent some time in Moscow, you know that a lot of Muscovites live in these uh, kind of ugly apartment buildings that are built in rings 10 kilometers out, 15 kilometers out. And most urban uh, geographers, folks who are experts in urban planning, will tell you this is no way to lay out a city. It has uh, repercussions in terms of additional costs for urban transport infrastructure, uh, etc. And here we have a big, massive plant that's still right in the center of Moscow, it's right in this zone, five to six kilometers out from the Kremlin. This is the Zeal car and truck plan. Hundreds of hectares of urban land that basically has sat unused for the past 20 years because they lost the market for what it was that they produced, the steel, the trucks and, uh, trucks and cars. And only now is Moscow really getting around to, uh, to using that space in a different, uh, in a different way. It's, this is state-owned land, okay. So I said there's a second reason that uh, that uh, ownership, land tenure is important, access to finance. Just a couple of cute headlines here. Banks would rather not deal with pigs as collateral if the borrower is unable to repay the loan. They'd rather not deal with lingerie. Land is a, uh, a more liquid asset. It's more easy to kind of find a, a, a buyer for. What does a bank do with, you know, crates? Shipping containers full of lingerie and pigs—they're not, they're not, uh, they're not equipped to deal with that. And so, um, land tenure can matter for financial flows. This pr- picture right here of IKEA was what initially got me interested in the question of land in uh, in the Russian context. This IKEA, for those of you who are familiar with Moscow is on the way in from Sheremetyevo Airport, the big international airport. So if you land and then you drive into Moscow, just before you get into the city in the town of Hinki, which is in the Moscow Oblast, you pass this Akia. Now, why did Akia, which is interested in selling to Moscow's large consumer market all its, uh, well, all these, you know, the blonde furniture, if you assemble furniture, all that sort of stuff that they they sell, you all know their, 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 their stock and trade. Why didn't, they, why didn't they locate right in the center of Moscow where the consumers were? Akio actually wanted to own the land, and the Moscow city government wouldn't let them own the land. The Moscow Oblast government would let them own the land, so they actually decided to locate right on the border of Moscow City in the oblast. Why, didn't they, why did they want to own the land? They wanted full control and they were a little bit suspicious of dealing with Moscow city government as a landlord. This issue of the potential uh, of corruptible officials to use land as a lever also relates to the issue of land access. Ironically, in Russia, the world's largest country in terms of land mass, We have a lot of number, we have a very large number of firms that report that they don't have easy access to land to expand their current operations. And so each uh, wave of the business environment and economic performance survey, they ask them, on a scale of one to five, how problematic are these factors to your firm's operation? And if the firm answered five, very problematic, I'm picking it up here. 25% of firms said regular access to electricity is a big problem, it's a big obstacle for our business. Access to land was the second most in in 2009, which is the second most recent wave of the BEATS survey. Uh, When we compare the responses in Russia on these questions about the barriers to your business to the countries that acceded to the European Union in 2004, make that comparison, and redo this chart. So, we're going to get the relative degree that Russia, relative to the Polands and Czech Republics of the world, what are the problematic barriers. We see a slightly different ordering. So, the bar here is representing the percentage point difference between the percentage in Russia that said that a particular issue was problematic and the percentage in the Central and East European countries that said it was problematic. So, in Russia, the biggest Relative problem, relative to Central and Eastern Europe, is access to land. What else is up there as well? Corruption and access to finance. I'd say that control over land is depriving firms from accessing financing, and it's also giving uh, officials, potentially corruptible officials, a greater ability to extract some corruption-related rents that go along with their control over land. It's a point I'll come back to. Let me talk a little bit uh, about the history of land tenure reform uh, after the Big Bang privatization. So the 1993 Constitution in Russia enshrines the right of Russian citizens and Russian legal entities to own land. That was a big change from the communist era, where there was no private ownership of land. They launched the Big Bang privatization in 93, 94, and pretty soon some of the advisors around Yeltsin, the Gaidars, and Tobias said, you know, really the land should have gone along with the rest of the enterprises. Let's see if we can correct that problem and allow the enterprises to take ownership over the land. And so at a time at which the central government in Russia, the Yeltsin government, didn't have a lot of power, they tried to prod the process of land privatization underneath these otherwise privatized enterprises. They tried to prod along through the passage of several presidential decrees, which laid out a process as to how individual enterprises could take ownership of the land underneath them. A number of regions, though, totally rejected that reform. Thirty-two regions, in fact, in the 1990s, Moscow City included, said, no privatization of land. We're not going to allow it at all. And so by the end of the 1990s, we have a situation where a relatively small amount, less than 50,000 hectares of urban land had actually been privatized. That's less than the size of Moscow City, and this is across the entire country, less than 50,000 hectares. When Putin comes in in 2001, he's got a fairly uh, progressive, liberal set of economic advisors, and they uh, push him to push through the Duma, the national legislature, a new land code that was specifically focused on urban land. They divorced agricultural land from urban land that made it easier to get through the Duma, and they gave a further push to uh, the privatization of land under otherwise private enterprises. And so, in the first decade of the 2000s, despite what kind of the common story is, is that period being one where there's very little new privatization with respect to urban land, we see uh, the stock of private land in urban areas growing each year, 15, 16, 17 percent, in large part because of the, the reforms that were launched in the first Putin administration, the land code passed in 2001. At the end of this period that I've got reflected here, land underneath enterprises can be one of three forms. Land tenure can be either private, where the enterprise owns the land. They can rent from government at the municipal, regional, or even the federal level, depending upon who, uh, which level of government is assigned ownership. Or in some cases, the old Soviet form of land tenure, which is called perpetual use, which basically is the weakest form of land tenure. It gives very strong eminent domain rights to the government just to come in and and take the land away. These are the three forms of land tenure that exist. Um, Let's see, we're gonna go to about 315 before I open it up to questions, is that good? So this gives you some sense of the regional diversity some of the regions took up the call for the, uh, the, uh, the privatization of enterprise land. Regions like Belgorod and Tatarstan are out in front. Um, this number actually is a ratio of all urban land in these different regions, in these different uh, oblasts and cries and all these large administrative units. Russia has over 80. In these different regions, What's the ratio of all industrial, commercial, and residential land in urban areas that's owned privately by firms compared to all industrial, commercial, and residential land owned by the state and municipalities? So the higher this number, the more land privatization there's been in the region. So we go from Belgrade on top all the way down to Moscow City where there's almost no private land uh, and Khabarovsk uh, at the bottom. The red numbers represent how many firms I was able to survey in my own survey of enterprises that I'm going to be talking about in just a second, but you, this is, gives you some sense of uh, the um, regional variation that's also captured in this map. Red means more private, that's probably uh, a not a uh, very good color to choose for private property, but Red is uh, the uh, regions that have the greater degree of private land ownership in the urban areas. The whites, we don't have any data on it as well, Uh, don't have any data on it at all. This data on land privatization comes from 2008 uh, and the the Russian state land Mm -hmm. agency. Okay, so in September, of 2009, September and October of 2009, I put into the field a survey working with the Levada Analytical Center, a reputable independent polling agency that works with Western academics, uh, and we surveyed 359 uh, enterprises, privatized enterprises. These were firms that had deep roots in the old socialist system, but they had been privatized, their physical capital had been privatized mostly in the early and mid-1990s. Moscow and St. Petersburg in that 359 are disproportionately represented. We've got about a fifth of all respondents in those two cities. Half of the firms by design were to come from uh, these regions right here, in which the bulk of the privatization had occurred. Uh, All of them had to have at least 500 employees in the year 2007, so these are big enterprises, land-hungry enterprises. And in terms of the sectoral distribution, it's across different branches of industry. These are the branches that are most heavily represented. It was about an hour and 15-minute questionnaire sitting down with the managers of uh, these enterprises, asking them basic questions about their employment, their ownership structure, their performance in recent years, A lot of questions about what we'll call their primary production plot, that is, wherever they uh, produce the bulk of their output, we'll call that piece of land on which it occurs their primary production plot. Many of these enterprises have more than one plot. We ask additional questions about at least up to three more plots, questions about previous sales and seizures of their land, and then a whole bunch of questions that related to just general land issues. Putting the managers in the position of being experts on ma- land-related questions. Yes.
0: Um, could you let us know how the firms were selected,
2: and then what the non-response rate was? So the non-response rate is is higher than I would have liked. It's it's over 50 percent. Uh, it would have been even higher. It's about it's between 40 and 50 percent. It would have been higher. But I got uh, one of the heads of the uh, Moscow-based business associations to write to some uh, local enterprises to encourage them to to respond to this uh, survey. And then the firms themselves were chosen uh, by the um, the Levada Analytical Center in a somewhat random uh, way. Okay, uh, this, um, don't want to spend too much time on this, but this gives you some sense of the variables that I was able to collect from the different enterprises in the survey. Number of employees, ownership structure, years since you were privatized, your firm was privatized, number of questions relating to the primary production plot, and then we've divided up the responses made the responses here conditional on the uh, tenure status of the primary production plot. These are the firms that own their pr- primary production plot. These are the firms that lease and pay rent to uh, a local or, or regional government and then there's a small percentage of firms that hold their land under these perpetual use rights, that legacy from the Soviet era. About To give you the breakdown, this is about 40% of the sample, about 50% of the sample, and about 10% of the sample right here. Uh, there are not uh, many noticeable differences, at least with respect to these variables. Uh, we asked all the firms that had taken private ownership of the land, why did they take private ownership? What was the motivation? And the most popular response on a one to five scale, 62% of the firms said five stronger or more secure property rights. We also had some firms, 42% said we privatized the land uh, so, so as to better access credit. We recognized that land could serve as a useful form of collateral. Down here, this uh, bar chart gives you some sense of the time difference, the temporal difference between the privatization of the physical capital, the buildings and machines, and when the land uh, was privatized. And so, looking just at the subset of the firms that had taken ownership of their land, most of them, their physical capital had been privatized in 1994 or before very small percentage actually took ownership of the land in that period. But then as we go across time here, you can see that taking ownership of the land is becoming more and more prevalent. And so among the privatized enterprises that have taken private ownership of their land, it's first the physical capital and only later on average the uh, the land assets, okay? So what did I do with this survey? Ask various questions, test various hypotheses. The major ones that I focused on are does private ownership of land provide easier access to credit for enterprises? Does private ownership of land encourage, because it provides easier access to credit, higher rates of investment? And does private ownership of land give enterprises a greater propensity to reallocate or sublease a portion of their primary production plot. All enterprises, regardless of whether they own the land, lease the land, or hold the land under that Soviet-era perpetual use rights, have the legal right to lease or sublease a portion of their land. So there's no legal constraint here. But to the extent that we'd like to see these post-socialist cities reorganized because they've got this... Socialist era burden, this uh, legacy of being hyper industrialized, we'd like to see some of these industrial enterprises in urban areas reallocating their land to other users. Yes? Uh,
1: Can can the landowners lease the land for whatever purpose? I I mean, if the people who want to get the land.
0: Can, can they do whatever they want? There, there are going to be regulations,
2: you, you can't if you, uh, for instance, the chemical industry is regulated by certain environmental uh, legislation, you can't just dump anything, you can't carry out any industrial but process I mean, on a particular piece of land. The, for
0: example, factories on farm
2: uh, so th- I should have I made clear all the enterprises that I'm surveying here are in urban areas. So these are not rural. These are not rural enterprises. Uh, if, if somebody wanted to, uh, to grow crops in the center of uh, Omsk, uh, I'm not sure if there are any regulations to prevent them from, from s- leasing and then growing. Uh, growing winter winter wheat or, or rye or something like that. None that I'm aware of. Yeah, but there are environmental regulations that prohibit certain, certain industrial processes from happening. Anyway, so these are three big questions that I take to the survey data. And what I find is that when in survey questions that ask the degree to which you have difficulties uh, accessing credit and does that pose a problem for your business on a one to five scale? Five being it's a big problem poses a big problem for our business, the private firms here respond with the lowest number and that number is statistically different than these two other forms of land tenure. So at least here we've got um, an unconditional correlation between land tenure and access to credit, at least in the, uh, in the minds of the, the enterprises. The firms that lease their land and hold it under perpetual use are more apt to characterize uh, themselves as having problems accessing credit. Similarly, intensity of investment activity. The firms that uh, are, own their land privately also res- respond relative to firms in these categories more intense uh, investment activity and also a greater percentage are reporting reallocating their land, subleasing it. to to third parties. So in some sense, law matters, and that's a surprising result in the Russian context. Formal property rights seem to matter. Now, um, I promised Scott that I wouldn't go into, and I only have two minutes anyway, so there's no time to go into a lot of uh, complicated uh, statistics here, but there's certain things that economists do uh, to assuage concerns that A correlation like that is indeed evidence of some sort of causal relationship, and I've tried to do a little bit of that, I'm gonna wave my hands and say I've done some of that, Uh, it's not perfect, some of what I've done takes advantage of regional variation in land policy uh, to get at the issue of causation, I'm glad to talk more about that in the Q&A. Why why do we see the regional variation that we do? Why is Moscow, for instance, one of those regions where almost none of the enterprise land has been privatized? Well, it's my suspicion that it has to do with land values. Where land is incredibly valuable, potentially corruptible officials want to maintain control over it because it gives gives them then the access to the rents associated with that land. Mayor of Moscow, Lushkov, no longer the mayor, Mayor Lushkov's wife, was uh, a large real estate developer in Moscow. If you wanted to engage in a new real estate development project in Moscow, you had to go City Hall because City Hall controlled all the land, the land hadn't been privatized. And the mayor would tell you that you needed to see his wife who who ran uh, the city's largest uh, real estate development firm. She quickly became the wealthiest woman in all of Russia the two of them, that couple ran afoul of Putin and they now live in very luxurious circumstances outside the country. But basically, I believe my my hunch is that the relationship between the pace of privatization in certain regions uh, has has to do with, the variation in that pace has to do with the value of land. So if you look at some proxies for urban land values like urbanization rates, and um, per capita income. Where those are high across all regions in Russia, we see less urban land privatization. And so we can explain some of that variation at the regional level and certainly that's a story that fits very nicely with the Moscow context. I've Got a couple other variables here that uh, capture the demand for land privatization, the strength of industry's voice. These four variables all together explain about almost half the variation in that urban land index that we saw. Come back to this and I'll, this will be my last point, Scott, uh, and then to, uh, open it up to Q&A. I find uh, this comparison of Russia and the Central and East European countries a really interesting one. Um, what is it that gives rise to Russia being an outlier here? Well we know it, it privatized its, its urban land very slowly. What are some of the other countries that you think might be part of this same quadrant that have privatized land slowly, uh, they're unlike the Central and Eastern European countries that did both together? Anybody have a kind of want to take a guess at some other countries that are in that quadrant of this, this diagram? Wild guess. Ukraine, China is not part of the mix, and China is not part of the the, the uh, uh, survey. But China doesn't, effectively doesn't have private land. That's that's true. The state owns all the land in China. Belarus. Ukraine. So this is Ukraine right here. Belarus. Uh, this is Belarus right here, and this is Lithuania right here. All these countries very closely located. And so my last my last picture is part of a project that it, I'm just getting off the ground with uh, one co-author at the World Bank and another co-author in Germany, where we're interested in the cross-country and within-country variation in land tenure patterns underneath, uh, underneath enterprises, otherwise private enterprises. And I don't know anything about ArcGIS, but I have a, I have a student now who's helping me with uh, ArcGIS and using the uh, most recent round of the Business Environment and Economic Performance Survey. And there are 4,000 firms in the most recent round from Russia, so there will be 4,000 dots there, each representing a firm. Each of the other post-socialist countries, um, I think it's Turkmenistan is, is out, uh, is not in the survey here. Um, I've got that right. This is Turkmenistan, right, Scott? Yes. Yeah. yeah. You're a Central looks, Asianist here. It
1: looks
2: yeah. bigger than it should, though. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, It's it's not, it hasn't been surveyed, and Turkey is for whatever reason. Um, But all the other post-socialist countries uh, are. The red is a disproportionate number of the firm dots are firms that don't own the land on which they sit. The blue means the firms in those countries disproportionately do own the land, and what and the white areas are territories where there are no firms within 200 kilometers that were surveyed. And so what's re- what I find really interesting here, and and why I, I think this is the sort of thing that's particularly good for an interdisciplinary study center like the Ellison Center, because I think there are historical forces at work uh, in this particular pattern, uh, because of The ideological forces that were at work in the early 1990s, kind of all this Western advice that says, go fast with privatizing your physical capital of your enterprises, um, we see see that big bang privatization, 70% of of output in Russia is privatized very quickly. But norms regarding land have, uh, have changed much more slowly. Uh, they tend to be a more slow moving institution. We can privatize the physical capital, but culture determines uh, and history determine attitudes towards land. And so I'm, I'm thinking it's not an accident that we see a very distinct kind of regional pattern. Um, kind of the old Slavic core uh, down in through north and eastern Ukraine, but not all of Ukraine, the western. Parts of Ukraine, we're seeing some blue and certainly not not all red. Uh, We're seeing down here in the Caucasus region a pattern very unlike Russia. We're seeing some northern Kazakhstan, a pattern, you see some reds here, they're just barely coming through, but not the southern part of Kazakhstan, which is more blue. And Central Asia, we see more private uh, land tenure. Um, And then Lithuania, Latvia, and much lesser extent Estonia. Now, this will sound crazy, but I'm I'm excited about exploring this particular hypothesis at this point. But if we overlay this map with the Russia's imperial boundary in 1800, it's almost perfect. (laughs) Russia's imperial boundary goes through northern Kazakhstan. It goes, it didn't include the Caucasus. It goes right about down to here didn't include at that period of time the end of Catherine the Great's reign, where there are a lot of institutional changes in terms of property rights, Uh, but it did include this area of the Baltics. And so there's a lot of work to do to match that story with this picture, but I'm, I'm beginning to kind of delve into the history books and... Thinking uh, carefully about what mechanism could give rise to that norms that were created two centuries ago persisting across time even through this huge historical discontinuity of the the socialist era to be reflected in, in what we see today. So I'll end. I'll end on that kind of inconclusive note.
1: Now, I have to uh, steal Will away in less than ten minutes for my class. So I suggest we take a lightning round of questions, collect them all at once, and then you'll do your best to answer them in rapid succession. Sure. So, um, I have one question. I have to go to my class. <laughs> Would you like to go first? Yes. Go ahead. Um, what about the urban land owned by Rosnet, Gazprom, Rosatom, the railway things, the banks, the media, the hotels, all these guys, all these enterprises yes. that have urban land but are very closely connected to Putin, and you tell me what the answer is. Okay.
2: Well, the short answer is I, I don't know. But I think I think we should be able to find out now. The, the, uh, the government cadaster allows us to open up and go in and pinpoint, as long as we know the GPS coordinates of the corporate headquarters of all these big companies that you mentioned, I should be able to find out if the politically well-connected uh, own the land, although you could imagine that they feel like their property rights, if they've got those political connections, are so secure that they don't need to take private ownership of their land. But it's an interesting question, I haven't, uh, I haven't explored, uh, exactly that yet though. Thank you. Thank you. Uh,
1: so my question has to do with, um, why the officials who hold the land don't sell it off for a big payoff. So you suggested that if they expect prices to keep on going up, they're going to hold on to it essentially forever because they have long time horizons. That's an argument about time horizons. But I'm thinking, even if I expect the prices to keep going up, there's still such a big payoff to be had by selling off a coal factory in the middle of Moscow to a huge condo developer. That would be a big windfall. So perhaps during the financial crisis, when things got shaky, when time horizons probably (laughs) shortened. uh, when officials were less secure about uh, the future uh, revenues that they were going to get by holding onto the land. Could that have been a time when you see some sell-offs in some places, especially places that were hit harder, uh, where there was no guarantee that the land would keep on going up forever, and where people's personal financial portfolios might have taken a hit, and they needed to compensate themselves for that?
2: Right. So the uh, right. the potential for a big land wa- land windfalls going to public officials is limited by law, actually. The, uh, the land code of 2001 prohibits land being sold to otherwise private enterprises for more than 2 to 3% of the cadastral value. So they've just finished a large national cadaster. There are two exceptions, St. Petersburg and Moscow, where the land can be sold for up to 20% of the cadastral value. Now the cadastral value is in some sense a number just picked from the air because at the time that the cadaster was completed there was not a robust market for land that could allow officials to easily establish what a particular plot was worth, what its particular market value uh, was. So to some extent the answer to your question is officials are constrained by by law, uh, but uh, this, this threat of Tearing up a lease, changing the terms of the lease, does give them uh, that lever to uh, to manipulate uh, enterprises for long term. Now, in a in a situation where officials are turning over a lot, I can see see your point about time horizons. And, uh, but yeah, the the short answer is is law plays a role. So Let's collect a
1: few questions at once, if there are any more, and then ho- uh, we'll we'll answer them all at, at once. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: I'm curious on your hypothesis. In those 32 regions that explicitly banned privatization, what was the rhetoric or rationale? Was it normative? Was it economic? Was it more negative of corruption incentives for banning
1: it? North?
0: Yeah, so I have a, a similar question in some ways, which is thinking about the variation that's shown in this graph right here, and then what you described as you know, what the rhetoric was, which was it's going to be too complicated for us to privatize this land. So I'm wondering if you overlaid this with the graph of or the table of how quickly they privatized. Are these the places that were privatizing extremely quickly and there was political concern that if we privatize we're going to lose control over these enterprises. So let's keep the land in our pockets so we have some flexibility in case this whole thing goes wrong. We as politicians will be able to sort of keep our fingers in the pie of the right. politician. Uh, yeah, because my first ex- expectation was it was going to be the biggest places would have to pay Privatizing because of that story of it's too complicated in Russia. There's too much land. Right.
1: Uh, Anyway. Are there any other questions before we finish up? I I would love to hear your comments about rural land. I know that's not in the study, but I wonder how much of that has been privatized.
2: (laughs) Okay, it's all yours. So rural, and could you repeat your your hypothesis again?
0: So my hypothesis is that it's something about. The places that are privatizing very quickly, the politicians are concerned that they're going to lose control. Right. Because it's happening so fast. If they want a mechanism by which in the future they'll be able to keep their...
2: So they're buildings. hedging. They're hedging. hedging right. By
0: not privatizing the land and just
2: privatizing So when you say the places that are privatizing quickly, you mean just the physical assets that are being lost to the private sector quickly. And so they retain the land as a way of...
0: Right, so the original table you showed, so you know, some countries it goes from 5 to 25 very quickly, some places it's more gradual, so if there's this quick, big shock, you want to keep it.
2: Right, yeah, places. so, okay. And then your question, I'm sorry, I have to go back. I should have.
0: Uh, I just thought the rhetoric was it normative rhetoric for why they explicitly banned privatization? Was it more economically
2: based? It, so the, the short answer to that question is I don't know. I haven't studied the regional press of these regions that went slow enough to know exactly uh, if, if, if I can generalize. I mean, Russians have always kind of treated land as a special asset, something that you know, going back to the Mir and uh, pre-revolutionary times, land at least in rural regions was was owned by the collective, right. and to the extent that there was any rhetoric that was more kind of normative, I think it probably drew on that tradition of of collective uh, land ownership. Um, maybe there was rhetoric that we can't uh, kind of just general anti-privatization rhetoric. We can't stop the privatization of the enterprises, uh, but we feel that. And I'm just speculating here. I don't. I don't know kind of the the. Uh, the weights given by these different possible reasons in different in different regions, and um, in Moscow, I don't, I'm not sure if there ever was kind of a a dis- public discussion. I'm not, a lot of people are just unaware. That's part of the story. Enterprises were privatized, but they were unaware that the land wasn't privatized at the same time. I really think that the story ultimately was one of you know we got to do this quick, and uh, land will come later if, if at all. Um, so the hypothesis that land is the hedge in areas that went fast with privatization, they wanted to hold on to the land, that's an interesting idea. I, I don't know if it's been tested by anybody at, at this point in time. Um, I've seen these kind of national level uh, time series of what share of national GDP is produced by the, the private sector. Um, I'm sure there are regional. Uh, time series as well, Um, then we'd need to get regional time series on land and that does not exist. So that this, this data right here, this is from 2008 and it's very unique data. It was on a website that's since been taken down when one federal agency subsumed another federal agency and so we couldn't actually do that exercise that I think your hypothesis is calling for, comparing kind of the rate of privatization, private sector contributions to total output relative to share of, share of private land. Um, agricultural, yeah, I don't have much to, I'm afraid not much to say about agricultural land. The um, uh, corporate farming is, is, is growing. Plots are being um, integrated within the old From the old communes, Um, I think a lot of the land is still effectively collectively owned. The uh, the farmers have the ability to to sell their share, uh, but they need. I I think this is right. I think they need full agreement of everybody else in the former collective farm in order to do that. Um, Yeah, I I should be more up on that situation than I am.
1: Great. Well, that was very efficient. Thank you, everybody, for coming, and uh, please join me in uh, thanking Professor Pyle for coming today.